Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Mike Viola back to the program. He is a Young Voices contributor joining us today from Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, Mike, tell us a little bit about yourself. For the sake of people meeting you for the first time, what would you like him to know? Thanks, Brian. I So I've been a contributor for Young Voices for about a year and a half now, really focusing on economic issues, um, particularly those where kind of the government's intervention um, into the economy uh, steps both on personal prosperity and freedom, but uh, on other rights as well. Well, I can't imagine government not helping in every possible way, I say sarcastically. No, I, but but especially on the topic of unions, I mean, that was already a little bit of a loaded you know, subject, right? Right to work uh, or union state. Um, talk to me a little bit about how uh, federal labor law right now is actually pitting unions against uh, against workers. Yeah, so uh, the way you framed it there is is really helpful. Actually, um, you you brought up the the, the right to work concept, which um, has has been a hot topic in recent years. That's been the, where the fight has mostly focused on, on the distinction between public and private sector unions. Um, but it turns out that even nominally private sector unions have um, a weird. A uh, source of help from the federal government um, under the National Labor Relations Act of 1935. Um, it's an ugly New Deal relic. Uh, the National Labor Relations Board um, oversees a public or private unionization efforts in the United States, and because of that, um, they have a lot of power. Even when an ostensibly private group of employees want to get together to form a union or as is much more difficult, want to leave a union that they have joined together, either fully dissolve it or one or two individuals leaving it. Um, wow. Seen, right, right. You would think, theoretically, that anybody would have the right to freely associate with a union or not, right? You would think that that's an agreement between the employee and the union and the union and the employer. Um, unfortunately, things are really not so simple. Um, the government makes it so if, you know, for example, uh, a group of workers decide they want to unionize, um, you know, they, they they can do so if they, if they have a vote and the National Labor Relations Board will run the logistics for the vote, which is, you know, already a little suspect. Um, but if they decide yes, and then it turns out things don't work out for them, they have at least, they need to wait at least a year before they can decertify that union. Um, it strikes me that if everybody wants to leave, wow. they should be able to leave. Um, further, if one or two employees want to leave and the employer is okay with hiring those individuals separately, um, they should also be allowed to do so. Um, but instead, there's a strange, uh, I would call it extra constitutional benefit to unions in particular as a sort of protected class under the notion of uh freedom to assembly and sort of its uh, byproduct, the freedom of association. Okay, I have a loaded question, so I mean, I want to preface what I'm about to ask you. With This is kind of loaded, but in your opinion, Mike, have unions outlived their, their usefulness? I mean, there was a time where, you know, there were some pretty shady labor practices, and I could see where, where maybe by coming together and presenting a united front, that would have benefited workers. I'm not so fond of what I see unions doing today. What's your take? 
I don't think they've strictly outlived their usefulness. It's that with the added privileges that they receive under federal law, they are very much rigged to serve union leadership. Um, Generally not employers and definitely not even individual employees, right? Nobody is hurt by forced or coerced union membership more than high-performing employees who (laughs) cannot be, you know, subject to... I guess sort of you know individual bargaining, so to speak. I, I guess as as you know as opposed to collective, um, it's really disappointing that um, we haven't come to realize that group bargaining. You know, again, as you put it, Brian, think about if if we're thinking about coal miners in 1930s West Virginia. Well, I right. understand why maybe they'd want to unionize, and why you know to to the big man um, running the the mine or whatever. Uh, they might all just, you know, be statistics to deal with, right? But um, in this day and age, particularly in like coffee shops where this is most famously in Starbucks happening, right? Um, there are probably substantial performance differences between different employees, and that'll come into stark contrast when those individuals cannot you know, push for their own raises or their own benefits and instead need to rely on both the union bargaining on their behalf collectively and on the union getting its contract straight with the employer. There are lots of individual employees who I'm sure employers would be happy to hire, but they can't do that without going through the union. Interesting. I, I appreciate your take on that. And I don't want to distract from the larger point, which is, None of that back and forth between workers and their unions gets easier when <laughs> the government gets involved and starts, you know, imposing laws here or regulations there. And that's that's really kind of the crux of this is it's it's complicating things that were already, you know, could could be somewhat complicated. Right. It's it's strange that it, for whatever reason, rather than strengthening workers' rights or employers' freedoms, they're strengthening the power of the middleman. Um, and right. the power of government, you know, right. right. I mean, it's, there's nothing like a bureaucrat with something to do, you know, a clipboard in their hand and some rules to go enforce. Right, exactly. Um, and sort of as, as you say, like the, the bureaucrats role in this um, also can't be, can't be denied, right? They spend a, the, the sort of enforcers of the labor department, um, they are the ones who run union-related elections. Um, so when they hold a vote to um, certify a union, that is certified by the National Labor Relations Board. When they mm-hmm. hold a decertification vote, that is cert- certified by them. But there are also um, employee intimidation efforts that um, the the Labor Relations Board enforces against employers, right? So they spend a substantial amount of time limiting the communications between employees and employers. So, you know, Mm. they they can't really communicate and any such communication is assumed to be intimidation. There are no such rules between the union and the employee or the employer, right? So theoretically speaking, um, co-members of a union or union leadership can say whatever they want to those employees, and that falls outside the ambit of the National Labor Relations Board. So um, it's unfortunate because not, especially in this day and age, um, where I I think we have a very fluid job market, 
things do not need to be hostile by default between employees and employers. Mm -hmm. Um, And a a lot of this hand up given to labor unions in particular uh, relies on that fiction that unchecked um, there will just be rampant abuse by <laughs> all employers nationwide. It's against... the only thing keeping them in line, right? All that regulation. Right, exactly. You know what I mean? No uh, no consenting adult employees can handle this on their own. So it's it's disappointing. Good point. No, very good point. Now, um, you mentioned in here, really what it comes down to is something, the underlying principle, if we strip away all the political intrigue and all of the... Uh, you know, drama and controversies about right to work versus union. There's a freedom of association that's that's at stake here. And that's that's really the, the thing that, that needs to be looked at very carefully before we, we do something that, you know, impinges on that. Right. Um, so like you said, the freedom of association. It's tacitly sidelined by the National Labor Relations Act. Um, which is disappointing, right? Because um, the rights of the First Amendment of uh, speech and freedom of assembly, from which the freedom of association is sort of the the legal implication, um, those apply to individuals. They do not apply to a bureaucracy invented over two or over you know 150 years after the founding, right? Um, right, they, right. That is, in fact, an individual right, one which. Um, no economic body or or trade union can claim to infringe upon. Um, so, I mean, my hope is that legislatively or in the or judicially, um, something is looked at. Um, and as you may have heard, uh, sort of the fight over these many Starbucks branches around the country having conflict between unions and workers um, that may instigate something um, as more and more workers see unions as not ultimately serving their interests like they expected when they joined. Okay. I feel much better informed for having had this conversation with you. And uh, I think probably likewise, listeners will probably, they'll take their coffee from Starbucks a little differently, knowing, (laughs) knowing what's going on in the background. Again, we're talking with Mike Viola, Mike, for the sake of people who would like to get a hold of you or follow you on social media for that matter. What's the best way to go about that? Yeah, easiest way is to find me on Twitter at MF underscore Viola. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy you could join us. This is segment two, and we are happy to welcome back to the program Oluwabukola Ademula. She has uh, been a Young Voices contributor and been on the show before, but uh, would you mind telling our, our listeners just a little bit about who you are and what you do, please? Sure. Thank you so much for the invitation. My name is Oluwabukola Dumula. I am a passionate um, advocate for women's rights. I am from Nigeria, Africa, and I specialize my advocacy when it comes to women's rights just within Africa. I do it advocating for gender equality, women inclusion, women's rights in Africa. 
And that's just a brief summary of who I am. Thank you. Okay. I'm looking at the article that you wrote for International Policy Digest about uh, Nigerian women face a steep climb for gender equality. And I think the last time we talked, we talked a little bit about uh, some of the challenges that, that are faced by women in, in terms of equal rights. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, what is some of the advancement or progress that has been made? And then let's talk about some of those areas, particularly in Nigeria, where where it's it's not uh, yet a settled matter and, and it hasn't been corrected. Yes, so, uh, I'm going to say compared to before, there have actually been some improvements, although it's still little. But I mean, there's still some, uh, some improvement when it comes to women's rights and women's inclusion. I mean, back then, there was no uh, policy around... Um, women's rights and violence, and domestic violence, but now we have the uh, violence against people, uh, against person prohibition act, which is the VAP 2025. We have the charge rights right, uh, right act now, which is still, there's still some, some controversy around it, but I mean, it's still something that we have now. And I mean, back then, again, we don't have women that want to go into politics, but there's been increased, um, there's been increased interest in the number of women who want to go into these political um, parties, who want to hold political positions, so has to help advance women's rights. It's a little progress, but at the same time, I mean, it's a progress. We're moving the overturn, um, overturn window gradually. So, yeah, I would say that's been little progress. Thank you. Um, talk to me about, uh, you, you mentioned that uh, there are cultural um, problems that, that reflect inequality toward the, the rights of women, but, but there are also some legal institutions that, uh, that apparently are, are very harmful in terms of, of women's rights. What, what is the nature of those legal institutions or what are some examples of, uh, of what uh, that denial of women's rights looks like? Okay, thank you so much for that question. The first one, which I mentioned in the article, was actually the uh, marital rape. Nigeria's constitution currently do not recognize marital rape. They only recognize marital rape if the person involved or if the woman involved have not reached the age of puberty. As long as you are married and you are over the age of puberty, Nigeria does not recognize marital rape, which is something that um, the WAP needs to look into. The WAP Act needs to be, be reinformed in as much as it has some good laws. At the same time, there's still some little issue there that the WAP needs to look at. And also the Child uh, Rights Act, which was brought uh, mainly because of the child marriage, especially in the northern part in Nigeria. Still, the domestication of this particular law, especially in the northern part, is um, still have some little issue. They domesticate it based on their own religion there, which is Islamic religion. And the religion says something around, um, as long as a child is in puberty age, she can be married off. So if a child of 10, 11, average age of puberty, the law there in that is Sharia law allows it. So there's still some little ish that needs to be little, uh, that they, they, there are a lot of awareness that needs to go into it and uh, looking into um, talking with 
some traditional leaders, religious leaders, and let them understand the impact of all of these harmful laws. And that's why I just try to bring my article and say that, oh, yes, we have some cultural laws, and sometimes we have some legal institution that is, that is unknowingly backing the gender inequality we are facing in the country. So the Violence Against Persons Prohibition Act, um, you mentioned that as, as one possible way, if that was implemented, that could help uh, with some of the legal reforms. Talk to me about the cultural um, changes that need to happen and, and what is the best way? I mean, laws, it's good to have good laws in place, but when it comes to, to shifting cultural standards or, or norms, that can be a little bit more difficult. How, how can we change some of those cultural problems okay. and, 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 and shift yeah. things. Thank you so much for that question. Norms is actually one of our biggest challenges, especially in a country like Nigeria that have a lot of culture and we kind of just value our culture a lot. So for us to have change when it comes to cultural norms, I always say this, there's not too much awareness and advocacy. This sensitization, we need to still keep bringing it to their face. And this was why it's because of a lot of sensitization that uh, the Northern state governors decide to start implementing, even though they see some age, they start to start implementing the Child Rights Act. It was a whole lot of advocacy that went into it. And this is how we can also shift the cultural norms. You just need to keep talking about the harms this um, this practice app and the world is growing even in the 21st century. More people are taking the place of all that um, cultural leaders have been there. So some of them that are coming into power kind of have little knowledge about the harmful, um, the harmful effect of all of these practices. I mean, there was a state back then in Nigeria that one of the uh, Eastern states, although some of them still practice the law, but there was a particular state, I think it was two years ago, they kind of removed the inheritance, um, I don't know, maybe it's a boring state, they kind of removed the inheritance clan that, that women cannot inherit lands there. Uh, it's only the son that can inherit the land, a daughter cannot. But that particular um, law was removed by the governor and women were given the right to inherit lands. Women that could not be chief, chiefs in title, they can't get a title. These are laws that with a whole lot of advocacy and awareness about the fact that women can contribute in this position and are contributing, women are making uh, names in this on this particular position and they are doing something amazing. These laws were, it's not a total change yet, but they're kind of adjusted to accommodate more women into it. So it's a whole lot of advocacy and awareness that can go into it. And we also still need the legal backing from the government. Wow. It, it's got to be exciting to see progress being made and frustrating to see that there there is still a good distance to go. Um, again, we are speaking with Oluwa Bokola Adimula. Um, for people who want to follow what is happening with with this issue, what are some of the resources you would recommend that uh, that they could read to to gain a better understanding and and perhaps uh, you know a good uh, unbiased point of view on it. Okay, thank you so much. I think for you to gain a better understanding about what is happening when it comes to women's rights in Nigeria, you can just follow the news. I mean, a whole lot of news have been published on BBC Africa. Some of them carry out even on the, um, documentary 
on women's rights issues in Nigeria, in Africa. You can also follow, uh, I think, uh, when you want to know more about the child marriage issue in Nigeria, you can follow the mm. child, child not rights page, I think. They also, is an international organization, they have a they have a branch here in Nigeria that, you know, document this child marriage in Nigeria. You can just follow and see how the little progress are also making in their own little locality. And there are a whole lot of NGOs here in Nigeria that are really, really working and doing amazing stuff just to ensure that women are included and women's rights is prioritized in the country. Okay, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure visiting with you, and I hope we get a chance to visit once again. Is there a place where people can follow you on social media? Yeah, you can follow me on LinkedIn at Adimula on Instagram at Nanke Ashley, and mostly on LinkedIn and Twitter. LinkedIn, as I said, Adimula Bukola, on Twitter, Adimula N. And yeah, my email is just bukola.dumula.gmail.com. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We're happy to welcome uh, Laura Pabello back to the program. She joins us today from uh, Mexico. And uh, Laura, for those who are meeting you for the very first time, take a moment here to tell us a little bit about what you do as a Young Voices contributor, as well as any of the other hats that you happen to wear. Uh, okay, well, um, in Young Voices, I mostly focus on immigration topics, mostly uh, mostly regarding the United States of America, but I, I also specialize in topics regarding Europe and citizenship. Um, I just graduated from my master's degree in history of global markets from the University of Glasgow and the University and the uh, University of Göttingen, Göttingen, which is in Germany. And well, um, right now we're here to discuss one of the topics that I really like, which is blood rights citizenship in the United States. Yeah, this is a this is an article published on freethepeople.org, but uh, I was not aware that there were so many GOP candidates right now uh, for president who apparently are making one of their their policy statements that uh, we need to end birthright citizenship. Now, for those who aren't aware of what birthright citizenship is, what do we mean when we use that term? Um, birthright citizenship or eu solis which in latin means uh, the right of the soil means that when you're born in in, in the united states then you gain automatic uh, citizenship uh, that that is a law that is common in the whole american continent all of the americas have, all the con countries in this continent have blood right citizenship um, countries in Europe and in the Middle East and in Asia do not have this right. And I think it's one of the most precious things that we have as a continent and, the, and America as a country. I so. know for, for a long time, you know, I mean, there movies have been made about it, stories written where, you know, the baby was born in America and it was kind of like winning the lottery. Oh, then that means there's automatic citizenship, you know. And But why, why do they want to end this? Do they see this as uh, an answer to... Um, to the immigration situation at the southern border, or is there there's something more that would have them wanting to uh, to repeal the idea of birthright citizenship? Okay, so so you just say said a word that it's really interesting, which is lottery, mm -hmm. and well, there are a lot of studies that say that um, the thing that determines someone's wealth, well-being, and earnings in their lifetime is the the place of birth and citizenship. So yes. 
being born in a well-off country is like winning the lottery. You do not choose that. It's something that just happens to you. So yeah. if you're born in America, then you have way more opportunities than anyone else. If you're born in Germany or in the UK, then you have more opportunities than anyone else. But uh, it is true that it can be an incentive for people to just have their kids in America and have their kids have more opportunities than they would have in their home countries in, let's say, Asia or South America. And uh, it's also an uh, an incentive for immigrants, for example, from Mexico to go and give birth in the United States, come back to Mexico and just wait until the kid reaches a certain age so they can like um, they call this chain migration. They can be uh, brought into the United States with a legal status. And the thing is that, yeah, many, many candidates and many politicians say that birthright citizenship needs to be ended because it incentivizes illegal migration. And uh, I just think that it's uh, a very sad thing because it's one of the core foundations of the United States. You actually make a very strong case in your article that uh, it's it's actually something the American economy needs and benefits from. Let's walk through that, shall we? About uh, what what is it about uh, bringing more people here, more people coming here, you know, to to help drive you know the American dream? Why do we need to be to to be continuing to encourage people to come and and to become a part of uh, you know society here? Um, uh, America needs more babies, and like we ha we need more babies. I'm, I'm gonna say we, even though I don't live in America, but mm -hmm. it's easier for me to talk this way. Uh, we need more babies because the birth rate is uh, decreasing. We are way below the replacement rate. That means that uh, women are not having the two kids that we need to in order to replace the population. I think the birth rate in America is 1.6, which is way below the 2.1 that any country would need to replace its society. Uh, so we're way below that. And uh, then also we have a very, a very big problem with um, with employment. <laughs> Actually, with jobs, we have way more jobs than we have people willing to work. We have uh, around five million more jobs than we have workers. So we desperately need more workers. And another thing is that America is aging. The median age in the country is 38 years. It's almost 40. It's it's kind of young, like you're still economically active, but you're not in your early years. Like, uh, so America needs more babies. America needs more citizens. And uh, it's not only because of the jobs, like you need more ideas, you need uh, you need more people That's, working. You need more. Uh, that is such a good point. I got to go need back. More ideas. Yeah, more brains working on the same problems and, and coming up with solutions. That's that's got to be a good thing. But it's weird. People get no, no, no. Only our brains. You know, no. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I, I I'm very grateful though that that you pointed out that. Uh, it's it's not just a matter of you know it's not just about about jobs but also those those young people who need to be joining the workforce um, need to be there to help uh, pay taxes to keep the social security checks flowing you know for those who are now you know retired. Yes, uh, I mean, I mean, we need younger people to to take care of us when we reach certain age and. Uh, for now, there's not a lot of problem, but there will be some problems in like 10, 20 years. Uh, we need we need workers, and it's been reported that industries that range from tech and AI to 
agriculture, they'll say that we desperately need more people. And even bringing them with H-1B visas, it's not enough. So the U.S. shouldn't be giving away these speeches in which they're saying, you're not welcome, or we're going to end this, right? Or we are going to end this opportunity, because otherwise people are going to go elsewhere. And you don't want all of these new brain, new young people to be born in other countries, that they should be born here in America. Well, why should they be born in, let's say, France? <laughs> like, we have to compete for these people now. It's just a new era that we haven't really, we just really haven't grasped that yet, that we have to compete for people now. So, Laura, um, talk to me a little bit about, uh, I I know you mentioned in your article that uh, if birthright uh, citizenship was repealed or it was done away with, um, there was a study by the Migration Policy Institute that said that could could mean that we could lose, the U.S. could lose up to 13.5 million citizens. why is it so important from an economic standpoint that that we continue to grow? I mean, I, I'm, I'm asking this. This is kind of the, the the strange antithetical way of thinking of it. But wouldn't less people mean more resources for those people who remain? I mean, no, because more people means more resources. It means more money being made. It means more ideas being made, more enterprises being made and more needs to be met. So if you have a big market, then you can have like a, a big, uh, a lot of people asking for a good or a service. Then you have a lot of opportunity as an enterprise, you know. So, okay. so, so the bigger the people, the bigger the economy. You can just see that in other countries that are not as rich as in the United States, but they have very big economies. Like Brazil and India, they're just really big economies because they have a lot of people. They have a really big market, and there's a lot of opportunity in there. Same, same with America. How, how, think, how likely is it that birthright citizenship uh, could be repealed? What would it take in order to take that away? Is it a simple act of Congress? Is it an amendment to mm-hmm. the Constitution? It should be an amendment to the Constitution, and it's not, it's not very feasible. I didn't focus on the legal part. A lot of people have done that. It's, it's, it's difficult, but I am focusing on the economic aspect because mm-hmm. uh, the, the speech, like the, the sole speech is very harmful, you know? Um, it's, it's not likely that, that it will happen, but I, I wanted to refute those who say that we need it because actually it's the opposite. We it's, need birth rights citizenship. We don't need to end it. We need it to remain. And we need to enshrine it, actually, because like, for many reasons, just not economic reasons, also like reasons about um, democracy, equality. Once you're born in a country and you are considered by the rest of, the, of your peers as some of, someone that belongs to their, to their group, that's a really big thing. That's a really big change that doesn't happen anywhere else but in the Americas. Because as a continent, we have always been welcoming others. And uh, well, that's why we're called the new world. Like we have new ideas, we have new institutions, we have new laws. So I think it's something that instead of debating it and wanting to end it, we should enshrine it. And we should like uh, be proud of it. I will be keeping a much closer eye on this issue as uh, next year's presidential race uh, unfolds. Just and uh, thanks to you, and and thanks for raising our awareness again. Talking with Laura Pabello, she is uh, with Young Voices. And where can people follow you on social media? Um, it's on Twitter at Laura Pabello under dash. Oh, 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 oh,
Welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment of Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Peter Clark back to the program. Uh, Peter is a Young Voices contributor, uh, checking in today from Arizona. And uh, for the sake of people meeting you for the first time, tell us just a little bit about yourself. Hey, yes, my name is Peter. Uh, I kind of like to think of myself as a little bit of a... Um consumer choice Clark Kent you know by day I work a corporate job by night I um, do independent research and do some writing so that's that um, yeah, I've been with Young Voices since July and liking the program so well and you're, you're talking about something we, we briefly touched on um, unions and how federal labor law is now pitting some unions against employees um, with an earlier guest on this program but let's talk about uh, the right to work law and this will vary from state to state but talk to me a little bit about Arizona's right to work law and I, I guess there's an effort underway to, to repeal this law yeah that is correct um, there is an effort to because um, we actually have it enshrined and, you know, I guess you could say codified in the Arizona State Constitution under Article 25. And what there's an initiative right now, I think it's Arizona Works Together, is trying to repeal it. You know, they're trying to get it in an initiative on the ballot, you know, trying to collect the signatures for that to re repeal this, to actually amend the, the state constitution to remove the right to work that's actually enshrined in there. Okay. Uh, what's, what's the justification behind that? Well, uh, what a lot of it is, is that, um, at least from what I can tell, and granted I might be inferring a little too much here, but I know that many in the labor movement claim that, you know, it's unfair, you know, to have, you know, people who are, you know, if you're in a unionized company, mm -hmm. right, um, to have to have individuals who choose not to, to join the union who partake in the, you know, I guess you could say the spoils of collective bargaining, but yet they didn't pay in, you know, kind of like, you know, a free writing problem as they would say in economics. Right. So I think that that's part of it. I think the other part of it too, is I think that a lot of people who are pro labor, pro union, they see it as there's a bit of a chilling effect because, you know, if, you know, many, 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 many employ, you know, many, I guess you could say groups of employees may not want to form a union if they know that they're, they're going to be free riders who are going to benefit from their, <clears throat> from their, um, from their, from their, uh, collective, you know, from their, you know, I guess you could say their efforts, right? Yeah. No, that um, makes sense. And, but I think that there is a bit of uh, now, cause I think unfortunately when it comes to the whole, you know, union issue, a lot of, oftentimes we always hear about the positive, you know, we hear about, oh, well, it increases wages, but at what expense, right? Who, you know, because generally, if, you know, if we look at like basic economics, you know, law of supply and demand, you know, the one thing they always tell you is never, you know, at least most honest economists will tell you to never increase the minimum wage. Why is that? Because basically you're going to price some people out of the market, right? When, you know, they may very well want to work for a wage that's below the minimum wage, right? So when you put it like that, right, essentially what a union does is it kind of raises it raises um, compensation above a competitive rate for whatever the job is. Because obviously the market can kind of set that rate based upon supply and demand, you know, and kind of, you know, prices kind of, you know, fell that, 
I guess you could say information asymmetry you know, in the market. So we know what the true value of something is based upon whether or not people are willing to purchase that product or service for that price, right? Well, but what a union does, it'll drive up the price of, let's say, like construction work, right? And what ends up happening is that there are a lot of people, and this particularly hurts you know, younger people who are trying to get into a trade, right? Because they are priced out of it because really for the, the amount of skills and knowledge they have, whatever rate the union's pushing for is probably a far above whatever's fair for their amount of experience and knowledge. Interesting. I I got to ask you this loaded question only because I asked this earlier of Mike Viola, who was in an earlier segment of today's show. Um, in your opinion, Peter, have unions outlived their usefulness? I just would like to get your take. I understand this is totally subjective. I would say yes. Um, I would say that, um, you know, because if you look, because I think yeah, I even touch upon this in my article, a lot of the benefits that you receive from you know, from collective bargaining tend to be kind of, you know, just a generic, you know, workplace safety, you know, compensation, all that. But couldn't you, you know, if you're, you know, if you're particularly skilled in when it comes to negotiation, couldn't you actually negotiate a better deal than what, you know, some, you know, bland blanket, you know, pack, package of, uh, you know, benefits that, that, uh, that the union representative argue, you know, kind of debated for you, if that makes sense. Right. Right. No, I, I appreciate your take on that. I look, I understand that there are times and places and perhaps, you know, countries or economies in which, um, unionization and, and, you know, collective bargaining can, can accomplish some good, but it just seems like there's so much political power tied to unions and government. And, um, it just seems like it's asking for a lot of mischief. We're, we're, we're told that, uh, you know, in right to work states, well, you know, you're not being you're not being protected. You're not part of the union, but it seems like you have more freedom to associate as you'd want to in a right to work state. And the employer seems to have more of that same, you know, for in other words, everything's got to be voluntary. Absolutely. I would wholeheartedly agree with that, Brian. I mean, because when you look at it too, what what if you don't agree with whatever the union's doing, right? Because I've noticed like kind of with like the whole, you know, Starbucks, you know, strikes, right? Good you know, example. They were they were protesting against, you know, the fact that they weren't decorating for Pride Month. Now, look, I have nothing against the LGBTQ plus whatever it is that acronym is community. But the thing is, though, what if there's an employee who does have an issue with it? Shouldn't they have a right to not have to participate in that? And I would say yes, because due to voluntary association, our right to free speech, you know, we can say, no, I'm not going to associate with that, right? Now, and and like I said, because generally the union unions tend to be kind of, if anything, adversarial to their employer anyhow. So it's not like you're saying this is a private company that's choosing to do this. No, this is a – it might – I would say quasi voluntary because obviously, you know, in certain industries, it, you know, like for instance, in public, in the public sector for teachers, it, it, they kind of really push you to want to join the union. Right. So, so if it's only quasi voluntary, it's kind of like, yeah, you don't have to join, but it's kind of implied that you do, you kind of have to go <laughs> along with whatever, you know, whatever activism or whatever, you know, conditions that they're pushing for. So it's cliche, but you know, the God forbid something were to happen, you know, <laughs> you know, it just, it just feels like there's, I don't know. There, it seems like there, there is, there's an element of power. Therefore things become kind of a, a tug of war. So how serious are the people behind this proposed change in Arizona's law? Um, are, are they, I, I guess, and I want to ask how serious, how much are they spending to, to try to make this happen? 
Well, we're still kind of in the nascent period of it. I know that there have been other initiatives I've gone through, but really it's going to be July of next year is really when they're going to need to kind of hustle to get those signatures. So we'll see. I need to look a little bit more into the actual funding behind this. All right. Like how much money is actually flowing to Arizona works together and all that. So that's yeah. kind of the pack that's running that. It's, it's just, I mean, you can tell a lot, right? Follow the money. That'll tell you who has the, the greatest stake or who stands to benefit oftentimes from a particular policy. But, you know, um, this is one of those instances where you got to wonder, what would it take to wake up the little guy, right? The worker. And uh, mm-hmm. it, I'm, I'm grateful for articles like yours because I think this is where the little guy is going to get uh, get informed. I, I uh, for some reason, right, I, I don't see much mainstream media taking, you know, uh, anything but a pro-union stance. Right. And that's very much the case. Um, I would, you know, I'd certainly agree with that point because I mean, we always, again, even if you just talk to regular people on the street, they always bring up, well, see, you make more if you work for a union. Yes. But what's your odds of getting into the union in the first place? You know, that's what we need to question. And, and even at that, what do you have to give up through participating in that union? Well, does does this reveal anything about uh, special interests in the state of Arizona? I, I'm just curious if uh, the the way that uh, this issue is approached tells you who some of the power centers are. In other words, who do people look to for? Well, what do you think? You know, when when a question comes up about this. Well, you know, I've noticed frequently that it depends on what side of the issue you are, who the power centers are, because a lot of times the pro-union folks, the pro-labor folks are going to blame corporations. They're going to blame pro-business people. They're going to probably blame, you know, the Phoenix Chamber of Commerce, what have you, all these, you know, organizations related to, you know, to, to industry. Whereas if you flip it on the other side, we know it's, it's basically all the big unions that are behind these initiatives to try to tell people how great unions are, tell them how awful corporations are and tell them essentially that, you know, you, you'd be better off if there were more unions, even if you don't participate in the union, which is kind of absurd when I think about it. Cause really when you look at it from like a, you know, if you could feel with the concept of dispersed costs, concentrated benefits, and public choice theory. That's that in a nutshell. Okay. Again, we're talking with Peter Clark. He is a Young Voices contributor. Peter, where can people follow you on social media? Uh, the best place to follow me on social media is on the Twitterverse at blog underscore logic. Okay.